Welcome to the Health Assessment Podcast, a panel discussion on behaviors, innovation, and trends in health and self-care. My name is Christophe Choquet. I'm the author of the book, Health Enthusiasm, and a global keynote speaker on the future of health and self-care business. Every month, I discuss with a panel of experts the positive changes that are shaping our health and happiness. And this month, we have a full panel. Calling in from Barcelona is our digital health connector, Aline Noiset. Hola. Our American in Paris, calling in from Miami now, medical expert in digital health, Aditi Joshi. Hi, everyone. From London, customer experience and research expert, Krupa Sutar. Hi, everybody. And last but not least, from Campaldium, human experience expert, Mo Zubina. Hello there. Together, we want to amplify the health enthusiasm that we see in articles, new business ventures, or simply even in the world around us. Now, if you're new to the show, you might wonder what health enthusiasm is all about. Well, health enthusiasm is the aspiration that we all have to be healthy and happy. And as a result of this, every company or organization is now more than ever focused on making their customers healthier and happier. Welcome, guys. It's been a long time since we've been with the five of us. And before we get started, I have a, a small public service announcement. Because yes, it's our 12th episode, which means that it is our anniversary. So congratulations, guys. It's been 12 months, 12 episodes. It's been amazing. I think it's been really good. We have about over 10,000 listeners. So that is pretty amazing, but it's also pretty fun. I, I think it's one of the most fun things that I've been doing in the past 12 months. So um, thank you and congratulations. But there was somebody else, at least somebody else had an anniversary as well. Aline, it was your birthday, was it? It was, yeah. We're not yeah. going to spend too much time on that, but I have a small thing for you as well. <laughs> Here you go. Happy birthday to you. Thank you. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. But tell me, what health enthusiasm did you witness in the past month? So my health enthusiasm this month was about Bayer, the pharma company. And so they recently announced the creation of a new business unit to deliver precision consumer health. So what does it mean? So they want to develop new products that will allow people to take more control of their own personal health with the help of digital technologies and making self-care more precise. So they say that they actually want to close the loop between monitoring awareness and diagnosis on one hand and education, treatment and prevention on the other hand. And they will do that through partnerships with startups, with existing one like, you know, Bayer has some uh, invested in some companies like Ada Health or Yuma and also new companies. So I found that news actually very exciting. Myself being an ex-Bayer, you know, I work for G4A and we've been doing a lot of similar partnership, more with the prescription medicine business units at Bayer. So I'm very interested to see what will happen. And actually talking about anniversary, so G4A is actually celebrating its 10 years this year. So Bayer oh. also been very active in that space. So very much looking forward to see what will happen with, uh, with that new business unit. So you were there from the very beginning then, if I understand correctly. I was involved from the very beginning with Jesus and I joined a few years uh, I, later. So we, we did it in Barcelona and then I went to New York to do consumer health. So there in the US, which is a bit different from uh, the 
the Uprint department that they are launching now. And then I was in Berlin. Yeah. Lovely. Um, I love these new strategic uh, directions. And there's one other company that uh, announced a new strategic direction, and that is Nike. On June the 13th, what they did is they renamed their social handles, Nike Training, into Nike Well Collective. And they rebranded their life stores, life stores to Nike Well Collective stores. It's a little bit difficult to, uh, to pronounce. But the, what is Nike is, what Nike is doing now, it is typically moving away from being a sports brand to becoming a full wellness brand or even a holistic health brand, as they are saying. And they will be focusing on five pillars, which is the obvious one. It's movement, it's mindfulness, it's nutrition, it's rest, and it's also connection, presenting opportunities for community, both offline and online, of course. And the thing is that they will radically change their entire company, apparently, according to the announcement, because in the future, what they will do is they will use this, you know, well collective across their entire expansive connected ecosystem. That even includes indeed the stores, the social media, but also all of their apps, which is the Nike Run Club and the Nike Training Club. And to support this pivot, they actually hired a ton of health experts, a ton of academics, scientists and researchers to their the core of their company. I'm a huge Nike fanboy. I love everything, every new innovation that they're doing. So it was uh, very nice to see. I'm also a fanboy of Apple. Aditi, you had some health issues on Apple? Yeah, so earlier in the month, they announced that they were going to add a few upgrades to their health app. One of this is on visual health, which affects a lot of people as you get older or even when you're a child, right? But as you get older, a lot of different diseases or eyes just age. And so they wanted to figure out ways to assess that and encourage healthy behaviors to improve that. And then also for mental health, specifically depression, part of it is to ask questions out of the day. It's to send reminders about what to do about it and how to introduce a behavior therapies that might be able to help you. I only bring this up because there's a topic later in this episode that we're going to talk about marketplaces. And Apple is really doing it in a stepwise fashion to be able to take a, uh, a person and be able to give them information about their health from start to finish. But they're doing it in a stepwise fashion, which I think is actually very smart. Instead of trying to give you everything at once, uh, they're building it in a way that only adds a little bit at a time so that it doesn't feel overwhelming to the person, the patient, um, and doesn't give too much data to the clinician as well. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I saw the um, Worldwide Developers Conference and the WWDC, I think it was a, a week or two ago. If you looked at it, health, consumer health, health and wellness was the team that really tied everything together almost. I mean, every device had a focus, a particular focus on health and wellness. And indeed, all the things that you mentioned were mentioned. I really, I really liked the one with the Apple Watch where they said that the Apple Watch will be able to track ambient lights. And so when it notices that you spend too much time indoors, it will motivate you to go outdoors at least one or two hours a day. And so that's a really nice one. And the other one was related to vision as well, was the technology, the camera that is used for your face ID to unlock your screen. Um, it will now also be used to tell a person whether he or she is too close to a screen, which is remarkable, right? So I, I really love that uh, examples. And the health app will come to the iPad. Which might sound like not such a big uh, change, but I mean, it's a bigger display. It'll give better interactive charge. It might even be easier to bring along when you have a discussion with, um, with physicians. But I fully agree with you. I mean, Apple is really committed to every piece of the entire health spectrum, right? From general well-being to clinical data, from headsets to even 
as from 2024 and probably touch upon it next year to health insurance. So that will be an interesting move as well. What they did also announce was the Apple Vision Pro. You've probably seen it. Everybody's probably seen it. The um, spatial computing device. Remarkably enough, there were no health use cases there. It probably because there's still a cable and there's still some battery related to it. So it's kind of hard to do a, some sort of, you know, mixed reality workout now still. But if you look at, you know, many articles online and there's a lot of expectations in health there as well. I think it was Raphael Grossman, you know, the surgeon who was the first to um, live stream a surgery using Google Glass. He says that Apple Vision Pro might be super useful in the future when it comes to having the right information at the right time during surgery. Well, because they might have some data available through the displays that, uh, that be presented to the Apple Vision Pro. From Apple Vision Pro to Mo. Tell me something, Mo. Yeah, that's a perfect segue, Christophe. Um, we see ourselves gazing more and more into screens that come closer and closer. And uh, there's also a downside to that is that um, the way Apple envisioned it is uh, even in our own spare time at home for entertainment, you know, sitting on our couch, we would have these headsets on. But it is true that it kind of isolates us from human interaction. These what we call screens for one. They provide a solitary experience and they limit our ability to share moments and also to sense our real surroundings or even make eye contact. And on top of that, if your conversational partner is an AI, you're just there alone talking to technology without looking at anything. So I want to shift gears as far as that's concerned and introduce you to a sir that is called Imran Choudhury. He was a renowned designer who significantly shaped his user experience of various Apple products. He worked at Apple for 20 years. I don't know if you know the slide to unlock. That is his thing. And he worked together at Apple with his wife. And they've started a company which is called Humane, which is kind of a counterbalance to Apple Vision Pro. They've raised 300 million US dollars and Microsoft, OpenAI, Volvo and LG are companies that have backed Humane. Now, the buzz from Humane comes from the fact that they've been working on a secretive tech startup for over a year, and now the company is finally offering a look at what it's been building. They had a TED Talk, uh, Imran Shudri had a TED Talk last month, which was kind of secret, but it leaked, and he demonstrated the AI power of a wearable that the company is building as a replacement for smartphones. They call it the smartphone killer. And bits of the video leaked online after the event, but the full video is now available to watch. I recommend you watch it. And the device is just a small black puck that slips into your breast pocket with a camera, a projector, and a speaker sticking out of the top. And he made a 13-minute presentation where he walks through a handful of use cases for Humane's personal AI gadget. So they call it personal AI. And the device rings when Chaudhry receives a phone call, for instance, on stage, and he holds his hands up. And on his hands is the phone number of the person who is calling. It's his wife. And he just picks up the phone by, by just talking to, you know, talk to the hand, as they say, right? So that's interesting. And he has a brief conversation with her. He presses and holds one finger on the device and then asks a question about where he can buy a gift because the device knows where he is and then points him into a shop nearby where they sell the things that his wife loves. He taps two fingers on the device, says a sentence, and the device translates it, but very importantly, with his voice, his accent, and his timbre. And he presses and holds one finger on the device too, and he says, catch me up, which is really interesting, and then the AI talks him through the day. And then the last one, which is really interesting, 
He holds a chocolate bar in, in front of the device and he says, can I eat this? And the device knows that he's intolerant to certain material and he says, you shouldn't eat it. And then he pushes the device and he says, I'll, I'll eat it anyway. Anyway, why is this so interesting? Because it was built from the ground up to securely serve its intended purpose. And it's an experience that is screenless, seamless and sensing. And it allows you to access the power of compute without you know, without leaving your surroundings, fixing a balance that felt out of place. And it doesn't require a device or a phone or a computer to be linked with. So they will tell more about that device. It doesn't have a name, but I think just the name humane to make sure that we don't lose sense of our surroundings and that we keep being present while we interact with tech is really, really interesting. Super interesting, Mo. And indeed, you could use that device to buy your spouse or your partner and pick up some groceries from a store, but you can also have it delivered, of course. We talked about Uber Health in previous episodes in the past, specifically the recent one. I think two months ago, we talked about Uber Health, where um, they announced that they would do same-day delivery of medication, prescription medication. Right now, Uber Health announced in June that they will do physician-prescribed grocery delivery service. And for patients that are discharged from hospitals. Um, so that's an, another move, food as medicine as part of Uber Health. And they're not the first one. Um, the health division at Instacart, which is a, a grocery delivery and pickup service in the United States and Canada. They already launched a similar service in uh, March 2023 together with the Boston Children's Hospital. Actually, funnily enough, Instacart, which you not immediately, you know, link with health and wellness and self-care. They also announced that they are doing four studies with leading academic institutions and health systems like Mount Sinai and the Stanford Cancer Institute. And the purpose of these studies was exactly to examine the impact uh, of food as medicine uh, on different patient groups. Obviously, also the, the ones that live in uh, with low income or the food insecure um, household. But an interesting um, evolution, if you ask me, food as medicine brought to your door. Krupa, what uh, health decision did you see? Um, so I came across an article which is in relation to a BMJ analysis, which has found that most women who have early breast cancer can now beat the disease thanks to huge improvements in treatments. So previously, their risk of dying within five years after diagnosis is, um, sorry, currently is estimated to be around 5%, which is down from 14% in the 1990s. So what the analysis did is it tracks more than half a million women with early invasive breast cancer. So this would be typically stage one and two. And they would either be have been diagnosed in the 1990s, 2000s, or between 2010 to 2015. And what they found was that the prognosis for nearly all women has improved substantially, substantially since the 1990s. And then most are becoming long-term cancer survivors. But the prognosis obviously will depend on someone's age, the type of breast cancer they have, any underlying health conditions and any other factors as well that we should also remember. So based on these trends, the researchers behind the, the study, the Oxford University study, say that women today who are diagnosed have a much lower risk, which is just absolutely amazing. Two thirds of women who have been diagnosed recently, their five year risk of death from breast cancer is now less than 3%. 
But for some women, one in 20, it's around 20%. And that's mainly due to the um, advances in treatment that have also been developed. So apart from surgery, obviously, other treatment advances include targeted therapies for breast cancer. There's other new treatments such as hormone therapies and then also precise and effective radiotherapy. We also know that more women are being uh, screened for cancer than 20 years ago as well. And there's a greater awareness of the symptoms, which has also helped led to an impact of obviously early case uh, diagnosis and um, detection. But really lovely news coming out of this piece of work. Yeah, totally lovely news. And um, in the subject of, uh, of cancer, perhaps as well, Canada is becoming the first country to require health warnings on individual cigarettes. So there will be health warnings on, the, on individual cigarettes. I always, I always tell you guys that I, I, try, I try to end with some health systems that are rather extraordinary or specific or a bit weird, perhaps. So this is one. I have a quick fire of a couple of others. People in Japan are taking classes today to relearn how to smile. Because after three years of pandemic masking, more and more people have developed some sort of complex about smiling. And so now you can take a course to actually learn how to smile again. The class costs about 55 euro per hour. And the same extraordinary quickfire round. I've read somewhere that researchers in Arizona State University have developed a robot that is breathing, sweating and shivering. The purpose of the robot is to better understand the health impacts of extreme temperatures. And then finally... Do you guys know what mommunes are, a.k.a. mom communes? Apparently, all over the world, what we're seeing is that single mothers are moving in together in order to split the responsibility of raising a child as well as paying the bills. So there's a ton of websites out there. There's a ton of Facebook groups, but also there's a ton of, you know, real estate initiatives. I mean, apparently, Aditi, if you have any friends with kids, later this year in Paris, there will be an opening of a shared living space for single parents. So you might want to check that out or you might pass it on to some friends if that might be worthwhile. It is a health to world indeed. Thank you all for these examples. I mean, there are so many positive changes that are making our world a little healthier and happier every day. I personally enjoy watching these. I analyze them and I try to understand the broader impact of these. I even write a newsletter about it called It's a Health Enthusiasm World. If you're interested, go and discover them on Health Enthusiasm. Every month, I try to recap one newsletter, but we talked about it last time. I haven't been able to, you know, perform. And actually, I have a good newsletter out yet. But I have another one. Let's get into it. When I said I have another one, it, I did not mean I have written another one. It's actually a newsletter by Andreessen Horowitz. Healthcare marketplaces, where are though? First, maybe we should talk about what are marketplaces. If you're not fully aware of what it is, it might be interesting to start with a description. And a description would go like this. A marketplace is any platform that connects buyers and sellers of goods and services with each other and facilitates a transaction. Very often, both sides... Buyers and sellers are able to set things up independently or in a self-service manner. So basically, we are talking about Airbnb, Uber-like platforms. Now, when looking at the Marketplace 100 lists in 2022, which is an analysis that was done by A16Z, the venture, venture capital firm co-founded by this Andreessen Horowitz. Well, in 2022, there were four health and wellness marketplaces on this list. 
which apparently was already a record. Now, this year in 2023, we have about eight health and wellness marketplaces. Now, if, if I quickly sum them up, what we have, we have Gym Pass, which is basically an easy access to gyms for employees. So you can basically go to any gym if you're an employee that subscribes to Gym Pass. There's Resort Pass and Fresha, which is in pool and spa access. So basically you could, as an individual, go to pools somewhere in a hotel or to in a certain spa. There's Swimply, which is you can rent your private swimming pool to other people. And then it becomes a little bit more interesting because those were really in the wellness sphere. It's just about, you know, gyms and, and, and pools and spas. But if we go a little bit more into the healthcare sphere, we have Alma, which is a marketplace for AI and algorithms where you can actually process medical images for accurate diagnosis, which is already a lot more interesting, if you ask me. And then there were three, Sundermind, Headway and Pat, which were you know, mental health related marketplaces where you can find your therapists. Interestingly enough, none of these eight made it to the top 50. And what's more remarkable is that technically speaking, there are only four healthcare marketplaces in the top hundreds, being Alma and the three uh, mental health ones. And even there, if we look at those four, we notice that the type of online marketplaces is still old school, by which I mean they're more like middleman models where an intermediary software helps match supply and demand, but there is no real self-service transaction like we see on Uber. And this is quite remarkable because if we look at what healthcare represents in the household spend, in the US it's about 12%. In in Europe it might be a little bit lower, of course, although in Greece it, it even reaches that 10%. But that's a considerable, you know, amount that people spend on healthcare. So it is remarkable that when we look at health and wellness, which is such a big chunk of our household spend, that there aren't any more healthcare-related marketplaces. And apparently that is the idea of Andreessen Horowitz. What he says is that, and I'll quote, we strongly believe there is a trillion-dollar opportunity in becoming the front door to healthcare, the marketplace where consumers go to find and book appointments across multiple conditions and specialities, buy the lowest cost drugs, and even shop for insurance. So Mo, do you believe that there is a trillion dollar opportunity for healthcare marketplaces as Andreessen Horowitz is mentioning here? I don't know, Christoph, but I've been thinking about it. And in order to be sexy, you need healthcare practitioners and healthcare professionals to be interested in existing on such a marketplace. And I was asking myself, why would they do that? Because it doesn't look like healthcare practitioners or healthcare professionals have a lack of work. Secondly, we talked about the backlog. You know, there is a discrepancy between the care that needs to be provided and the care that they can provide. And as Aditi says, I think remote care and, and, and is, is already being integrated in some ways. So the reason why you would be on a marketplace is not really clear for me. I'm not a physician, but I have firsthand experience on what it means to be a doctor or a healthcare professional. I've just invested in relief pain clinics in Belgium. And my, my partner in life is a doctor specializing in holistic medicine. Hi, honey. So if you're online or accessible for the moment, it never stops. You get messages, you get WhatsApps and things like that. Patients bombard you with phone calls, WhatsApp. And what's interesting is they don't expect to pay for it. There is kind of an ubiquitous availability of healthcare practitioners once you've engaged with them. And it doesn't help. eh? We see burnout among physicians, physicians only wanting to group in group practices so they can take some time off. 
And so where I see the real value of a marketplace is if the marketplace would take away everything the physician doesn't like to do. I've talked with a physician who's been a physician for 15 years, and he says, you know, practicing medicine hasn't changed, but all that chisel, administration, computer, reports, things like that, talking to patients, is not why I did medicine. So I think if there is value in a marketplace, it is a concierge service where physicians would be willing to pay to alleviate them for everything that is not related to engaging with with patients. Really doing health, and if they could focus on it, if they could gain quality of life by doing it, I think physicians would be willing to pay for that, right? So a kind of filter between you and the patient, which which kind of filters everything that is, you know, short-term communication and chisel and hassle, I think, and there on that platform, even the smallest interaction could be monetized. If you want advice, you pay for it. So where your administration with the payer, for instance, is automated. So once again, I think these who consider that there's high value should think more on what physicians want to do, what they need, because Uber alleviated a lot of things for the taxi driver and also a lot of things for the traveler. So just thinking that there's value in a marketplace without thinking of what will we alleviate for both parties is kind of a a strange reasoning. I, I do agree with you when you talk about workloads, because I mean, in those marketplaces, very often the speed of reaction is essential. And so with all the workload, it's already difficult to be very quick and, 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 and fast within health and medical. So if the workload doesn't change and if it's not solved, as you say, it might be very difficult to do. Aditi, Mo talked about remote care and telehealth. Do you see anything happening there where potentially a healthcare marketplace could be beneficial? Well, I mean, telehealth technically started as a marketplace, right? So the way people came into it, at least when I started, wasn't at a local health clinic. It was a direct-to-consumer market. People would come and find you. They would be able to make appointments. They'd be able to speak to you when they wanted. And so that ended up being how you build your practice. It worked because at the time there weren't a lot of patients, right? And then as it grew, you needed more physicians, you needed more clinicians to be part of it, to grow that practice. So some of the issues that Mo described did happen. And then of course the pandemic made it grow bigger, but then again, there were a lot more people doing it and health systems were also engaging in it. So right now we're seeing a shift because initially there were people who just wanted to jump on for a few hours. And now there's people who are trying to become virtualists or virtual care physicians specifically. And so they're changing their model to join and build a practice online. And so for them, the marketplace might be helpful because that is how you do it. You can be part of a marketplace and then grow your practice and be able to build that. But after a certain level or a certain amount of time, which you've seen happening in some of the bigger companies, those physicians become commodities. And so their wants and desires and what they need from the practice is no longer listened to. They're just uh, easily replaceable. And then you basically create all the problems that in quality of care, in burnout, in overburdening the system that you find if you don't think it through. If you were going to build something like this as a front door for virtual care, it would need a lot of thoughtful process and it would need a lot of other digital tools so that doesn't happen. But from what people are building, it's not really happening. Yeah, I feel you. And I do understand as well. I mean, if you start as a physician, maybe it might be good to, um, you know, find a couple of potential new customers. That's for sure it might help because you're, you have a broader reach. But of course, then again, it's, it's very hard to have some customer loyalty or some patient loyalty afterwards as well. And then again, it becomes a commodity where 
you are subject to price wars, of course, or you're, you're at least at risk of price wars, which is also not maybe the, the way we want to move forward. Do you think that, I mean, at a certain point, I think a while ago when I was speaking about the future of telehealth, a year, two, three uh, ago, I said that we would see a lot of price wars within the telehealth space. Is this something that you see happening already from your experience or is it, is it something that will never happen? How, how do you see, how do you look at these price wars? Do you mean price wars of trying to get clinicians and how much they're charging patients or how much they're exactly. paying clinicians? How much they're charging patients, yeah. I mean, if you look across the board, it's not actually that different. The It's not actually that different. So now that we have some people playing and reimbursing it, for people paying cash, I mean, there isn't a huge difference in how much people are actually paying. Some people get it by subscription. So yes, so maybe that isn't as expensive. Some people get it covered by their insurance. Yes, that's not expensive. But if you're looking at the cash-only ones, still, the range is not that big. But if you look at what they're paying, there is a huge range on what people are paying. Some of the bigger companies, like I said, when it's a commodity, they will pay less and then people may do it um, and other people might pay more. Now, the contracts behind it, because that's kind of that's the work I do is create those contracts, can don't actually range nearly as much as what people are paying out. I just don't think physicians know this. And so they're willing to take that. Okay, so so far, not too much enthusiasm for this $1 trillion opportunity in the healthcare marketplace. Aline, what do you think? Is there a $1 trillion healthcare marketplace opportunity? I don't think so, neither. So we see, for instance, in Spain, we have some marketplaces already, like one is called Clinic Point, and it's a platform where you can book like a gynecologic revision for cheaper. You can get your retainer for your teeth. You can get ophthalmology or those type, those type of services for cheaper. It works. I mean, they have been around for many years, but I don't see that being becoming like a unicorn or what you're saying, such a, such a big business. But maybe to, to add on to, um, to most point before, when you were talking about the marketplaces and thinking about the two parts of the, of the marketplace, for me, when it comes to marketplace, when I think about marketplace, I think about being a good doctor, the company from China. So we talked about China last week, and I think they, they did a very good job in creating a marketplace for the people. So they've got one single entry point for the healthy people and for the sick people. And when you enter that marketplace, you can access your, your medical information, you can access your, your doctors, you can access uh, health insurance, like contracting or accessing your insurance, etc. So the way it works is that the company behind Ping and Good Doctor, they've been aggregating companies over the year, and that's really what they are f facilitating, like taking the end user in mind and making it easy for them to, to, to navigate. And also here in, uh, in Europe, AXA and Microsoft announced recently that they launched a new platform called Healthania. They call it an ecosystem, but I think it, it follows that idea that we just mentioned of making it easy. So they really focus on the patient journey and they want to make that patient journey easier. So when you're on, on the system, in the system, they can help you to connect with uh, the, the different people you need to connect with, like primary care, like insurance, etc. So I think that also follows a bit that uh, that idea of the, the the marketplace. So I think we'll see things. I remember in the US also, there are some companies who were selling some services. Maybe it all depends on the healthcare system, but you can get a knee replacement hips replacement, those kind of things, like you can find cheaper options. So there is a business there, 
but I don't think it will ever become um, a trillion business. Yeah, it's a good, it's it's an interesting thing you said about the new replacements because indeed, first of all, I probably need one soon. But the second thing is that medical tourism. I think medical tourism is almost like a healthcare marketplace in in, in some ways. Of course, is it a, a one trillion business opportunity? I'm not quite sure, but there's definitely something happening there. There's also something happening in, in mental health when you look at the top hundred list. Three out of them were mental health, and apparently it's the biggest growing subcategory. Um, so I'm not quite sure whether something is there there is happening or where we can expect something more. Um, Cooper, what do you think about this opportunity? I don't know. I'm struggling with this one, if I'm honest. I don't really have too much to say on it because... Yeah, there's also I, I just can't see I can't see how it's going to be a trillion dollar business from what I'm seeing. But what I have seen interestingly happening in the UK, and you may have read about this in the news, is that the NHS are allowing sh- um, users, their patients to shop around for where they get their treatment by looking on the NHS app. And for example, if your local hospital, you require a knee operation, let's carry on with that example, but your local hospital has got an 18-month waiting list, you can look up to five different locations based on distance and waiting times and quality of care, and then choose one of those to go to instead and have your treatment there. So currently only one in five patients actually do this. But the NHS is opening this up because, as Mo said earlier, we have got huge backlogs. I talked around the advances in cancer, but actually we're also seeing in the UK that the cancer care is actually, unfortunately, ha- having quite a lot of issues here as well. So by actually opening this up, is this an example of what we're saying, shopping around and you know finding the best place for you based on the quality of care and having that operation sooner rather than later and obviously still staying on the NHS though? I don't know. I like the version that the NHS have obviously released, but I'm, I'm not sure about the wider one. Yeah. I guess time Interesting. Interesting thought. I mean, yeah, we were looking at startups and, and businesses setting up um, healthcare marketplace, but what if indeed a healthcare system puts it out? Would be interesting to see. Well, anyway, thanks for that discussion. Now, let's move to the next segment of the Health Season podcast. Is it something, nothing, or everything? So every month, one of the panelists brings an idea, an innovation or an evolution forward that sparks their health enthusiasm. The rest of the panel will then debate and share their opinion about it. Do they find it something, nothing or everything? Krupa, what sparked your health enthusiasm this month? Actually, this is an article that my husband forwarded to me because he knows I love anything that's related to psychology, neuroscience and the brain. But what it's in relation to is that future firms could in the future, sorry, uh, firms could start using brain monitoring technology to watch or hire workers. So this would all be done via neurotechnology. And if we just think about what neurotechnology is, first of all, firstly, it's a widely debated term, but the OECD define it as devices and procedures that are used to access, investigate, assess, or manipulate and emulate the structural and function of neural systems. For example, everyone will have heard you you can get a wearable device, which is um, a headband, for example. That's your neurotechnology. And what that does is it gathers information on brain patterns, which produces neurodata. 
This can then be used in conjunction with performance and behavioural patterns. So it's already used in healthcare in the healthcare sector. Obviously, it's, it's got huge regulations here, and commercial interest around this is growing. So Elon Musk's Neuralink recently won permission for human trials of its implantable brain-computer interface. And so in four or five years' time, the ICO suggests that as, an empl- as employee tracking, we know employee tracking is, uh, is expanding, that the workplace may routinely deploy neurotechnology for safety, productivity and recruitment. So already today, there are some games and drones which are controlled by devices that take readings of the brain. So future examples could be helmets or safety equipment, which might measure the attention and focus of employees in high-risk environments. Managers might use the neurotechnology to assess how individuals react to workplace stress. And then you've also got it applicable to education, where you have brain monitoring devices, which could be used to assess students' concentration levels and stress levels. So this all sounds amazing and great, but of course, there are drawbacks. So for example, you could get some incorrect data, there could be discrimination, um, and a whole host of other things. So I wanted to bring this to the team today to understand, firstly, what do we think about this? And how do we feel about this potentially being applied to the workplace? I'm going to take that firstly to Aditi. Well, firstly, I think this is fascinating. You know, we always talk about, well, I'll tell you. So when I first was in medical school decades ago, (laughs) we always just assumed that there was very difficult or almost impossible for the brain to regenerate. And we've seen in research over the last since then, that that's not true. There are ways to regenerate. There's things that um, happen in the brain that we didn't know about. And so I find this incredibly fascinating that we can maybe help and change people's life because of this. So I find that fascinating. But it's the second question about, you know, using it in the workplace. I think it can be used for a positive, being able to help people with mental health, maybe ensure that, you know, if people are feeling a certain way or they're good at certain skills or giving those tasks, but that can very quickly go the exact opposite way too. It can be used to discriminate. It can be used to keep people back. It can be used in research in ways to enforce some of the more negative stereotypes that might be out there, if that's true. And so I think it's really one of those places, it's going to be one of the good and bad things about technology if we aren't very clear and positive about what that means and be very clear that it's you know not to be used in certain ways i don't have hope for the human race to do that but thanks aditi definitely interesting on brain and regeneration there's so much going on in terms of neuroplasticity at the moment and uh, ways in which we can help ourselves and uh, learning and whatnot so thanks for that aditi um i'll go to aline next it's a very interesting topic, very fascinating. I dived a bit into that topic on neuroelectrics when on neuro neuroscience when I was working with a, a company here in Barcelona called Neuroelectrics this past year. And we went to a conference in uh, in Lisbon, very nice conference that I really recommend. That we, it will be back again in October. It's called the Neuro Summit, 11th of October. Krupa, you may be interested in, in this one. And something they said there that I really like, they, they said that the brain and neurology today and neuroscience is where cardiology was 20 years ago. So it means that that's how behind we are, how little we know about the brain. 
but I think there's like huge opportunities about what you, you, you mentioned, no? and especially when it comes to healthcare. What I learned learning with that company is all the possibilities it can bring. So that company is doing a, like a, a headset that you run your head and they're doing a, like a personalized neuromodulation treatment. So they can actually identify the areas in the brain where you have depression, for instance, and then they can target. So you can read and write the brain. That's the idea. And that's a really, really very aligned with what you were mentioning before. And there's huge opportunities with conditions like Alzheimer, Parkinson's, and also the first, the first use cases is for epilepsy, and especially the, the kids who can be operated from epilepsy. So I think that's really fascinating. And they also have a cool concept that's called the neurotwin concept. So they are doing a twin of the brain to help with the disease I was mentioning before, like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. So there's also a European project focused on that. So huge opportunities in, in that space. But then when it comes to work, what you were mentioning, I find it a bit scary. And I think we talked about that a few episodes ago about having like that perfect person or like selecting the genes for the person. And I feel we're back to the same thing. And I would find it boring. Like if we select people based on their, like how attentive they are, because I think people are different and they have different strengths and maybe you're not the more um, attentive person, but you have all the strengths that you bring to the team that can com complement the team. So for me, it's like a little something. Thanks, Aileen. I think that's it's really interesting because as we talk about attention, this data is coming from your subconscious. And if, if your subconscious is not something you're aware of, then how can you then accurately report on the data that's coming out? And that's one of the concerns is how, how accurate actually will be this data? And are you potentially revealing things to an individual that they're not aware of themselves and then therefore discriminating? I don't know. Um, Mo, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm always here to ask why would you do that? And especially in the workplace, you know, what is the gain versus the risk? Right. I can understand if you do that with pilots, if you do that with truck drivers, if we do that with people who operate very heavy machinery, that is very important. But what is gained in workplace safety or productivity could be offset by losing employee trust. And that's an essential ingredient of corporate success. Employees in high trust organizations are more productive. They have more energy. They collaborate better. They're more loyal. Employees in low trust companies feel disempowered and they become disengaged. And you can monetize disengagement in the US. Yes, disengaged companies lose, listen very carefully, 450 to 500 billion dollars, 500 billion dollars. So what is the risk reward ratio of, first of all, doing that, losing employee engagement, but lastly, also equipping your organization to deal with that. That means we saw it with GDPR. No one was equipped. No one had the competence. No one had the resources, the specialization. And then the risk is, okay. Let's not hire specialists. Let's outsource that. <laughs> Imagine that a company tracking all employees to what is our last frontier, our brain. So, and then I agree with Aditi. If we rely on human integrity, hmm. There was a recent study of companies that track how employees use their computers and found that 26% of employees had fire workers for misusing the internet and 25% had fired them for misusing email. So it's not hard to imagine that what might happen in firms that are able to regulate and monitor this will also happen with the brain monitoring companies. So once again, I'm an enthusiast, but I'm a human realist. <laughs> Thanks, Mo. And finally to Christoph. 
Yeah, I think um, I agree with all of you. It's it's fascinating, and and to build upon what Mo was saying about the um, the why, the reason why I find it so fascinating is not specifically about technology or what the, the piece of technology in itself, but I really think it's it's fascinating because we as human we desire to understand, master, influence our brain specifically because our brain has a massive impact on ourselves on others or even on society as a whole. I mean, think about it. If we indeed, as, you, as, as was mentioned earlier before, that what if we can indeed impact disabilitating, disabilitating diseases by simply hacking our brain? What if we could improve our learning abilities? What if we could improve our physical power? And I, I believe that humans in the eternal quest to enhance ourselves, as was mentioned also by Aline, or just to become a better version of ourselves, I mean, it seems that we can achieve a lot by hacking our brain. And this is so tempting in many different ways. I mean, what if we could, you know, improve efficiency? Uh, it's, it's one of the, the things that we've been chasing or every company has been chasing for, for decades. Um, the reason why voice technology is there is because, you know, it, it helps us with efficiency. We don't have to tap in things anymore. Or we don't need to set the thermostat manually anymore. It's just, you know, you just need to call it out loud and it's done. Now, if neurotechnology can even help us with that, you know, if neurotechnology would facilitate some sort of brain-computer interface so that the text is written as soon as we think about it and that the thermostat has changed when we feel it is needed, well, this is a game-changer. And I think humans are really looking for that. So I really believe that, you know, this whole neurotech, neurohacking thing is is the very next frontier. It, it, it'll be everywhere. It'll be in our workplaces, our homes, everything related to connections and entertainment, and definitely also in anything related to health and self-care. All of these things will be impacted by neurotechnology. It will provide us with more powerful, efficient capabilities, which we all are looking for as um, human beings. And definitely, if you look at you know the bus that we are already are seeing now with AI, I think the human desire to enhance our abilities will even be accelerated. And you mentioned Neuralink, Krupa, is that I think indeed Neuralink is, 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 is feeding into that desire, that need that is implementing a chip to be able to match the intelligence of computers. So it's all driven by human desire, I believe. And indeed, as was mentioned earlier, there's some criticism or skepticism that we can uh, we can apply here. And if you want to read more on this, I, I, there's a book out there which is called The Battle for the Brain by Nita Farahani. I think you need to pronounce it. And it really is about what you mentioned, Krupa, supervision at work, but also about marketing, influencing, about propaganda and even geopolitical warfare. It's a big thing. I think somehow we all crave it deep down, but um, it will be everything. That's for sure. So thank you for that. Thank you for this um, discussion. It is clearly something, um, but now it's time for something else. Let's move on. In this health enthusiasm world, we see the boundaries of industries blurring between the world of healthcare, wellness, and consumer businesses. You can see consumer businesses are, that are slowly moving into the wellness and healthcare space, and we see the healthcare industry paying more attention to what is happening outside of their own industry. This brings the following question. What behaviors, innovation, or trends from one industry can be worthwhile to another? Or in other words, what should we bring inside out or outside in? So tell me, Mo, what's the ID, the innovation or the evolution that you would consider bringing inside out or outside in? 
Hey, Christoph, I'm um, addressing a topic which is called No Cure Care. Right. So here at the Healthusiasm podcast, we'd like to explore breakthroughs in, that offer solutions to health problems. Our focus has always been on finding cures and improving outcomes for various health issues. But I was asking myself, you know, what happens when there is no cure? How does a society rooted in meritocracy and performance deal with these situations where it won't get better? How do we deal with that? So in our performance-driven society, individuals who can no longer perform or deliver high-value service due to their illness are often gradually isolated from the economic system. And this isolation is a consequence of the perception that without cure, their transactional value diminishes and they contribute less to society and less to the economy. And that's why the next project fascinated me. It's not a new project, but I discovered it recently. So a few years ago in Tokyo, there was a restaurant whose elderly waiters and waitresses all suffered from varying degrees of memory loss and cognitive impairment. It was the brainchild of a man which was called Shiro Oguni. And he just visited a group home for adults with dementia and thought that their isolation and exclusion from the economic and social system was kind of heartbreaking. Now, I don't know if you know, but in Japan, known as a super aging society, dementia is predicted to affect one in five people by 2025. And he reckoned there really ought to be room to keep them included in society and also valorize them in the value that they can still deliver. So he created the restaurant of mistaken orders where the waitress, waiters and waitresses were all struggling with memory loss, but were nevertheless performing a job that required very good memory. And yes, 37% of the time, the orders were wrong. But 99% of the time, the guests left happy and paid for their bill. So I was wondering, is there as much innovation willingness and innovation potential in elevating the new cure segment as there is in finding cures? Can individuals living with serious mental or physical conditions still deliver value to our society? And the Restaurant of Mistaken Order presents a compelling example that challenges our preconceived notions, but also that keeps confronting it with the finality of the fact that sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. Can we organize ourselves to deal with that? So I'm interested to know whether or not, Aline, for instance, you see innovation value in addressing the new cure segment where there's nothing to do for the illness, but there's still value in engaging with the people that are affected by these conditions. Yes, I do. Absolutely. And I really like the, the example that you bring. I think it's, uh, it's very interesting. I would love to go there, actually, to try the, the, the restaurant. So here's in Catalonia, we had a, a similar, similar project. So we have a, a brand of uh, yogurt called uh, La Fagueda, and it's similar. So half of the people employed by that company are actually mental health or people with mental disabilities. And when I read your article, I also thought about, so this week I was in, in Munich for Bits and Pretzels conference and the keynote of the conference was Michael G. Fox. And as you know, he has, he has Parkinson's and he, I mean, it was amazing presentation. I think everybody was, was amazed by, by his presentation, by his presence on stage. And I think it's very linked to what you said now. So he's really advocating for like awareness around that, that condition, not really for cure. You know, and it's very, if you know him, if you've seen the film and you, you read his story, he's very, very well-spoken person. And like at some point, someone asked him like, what would you like people to remember about you? 
when you leave. No, he said, I don't care. <laughs> he really wants... So he's doing what he's doing. He was actually... He's on a tour at the moment. He just released a film called Steel about his life, his condition, living with, with, with Parkinson's and what all what is it entitles. And I think it's a great way to really focus on more living with that disease, what you are saying. No, not exactly... He cares about finding a disease for the others, not for himself, but he's using his condition and his experience to give visibility. And I think that's really fantastic. And also another point to, to your question. So in digital health, there's a special category that's been rising those past years called digital therapeutics. So there are apps or softwares that can replace a complement or drug. And one of my favorite applications of those solutions are actually those conditions who don't have a, a, a known treatment. And companies are, are developing solutions to address those conditions. But so they won't cure the people, but they are addressing the symptoms of those people. So they're actually helping the people live better with their, their, their conditions. And people who have been living with uh, Hashimoto, for instance, or um, bowel, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, like it really changes their, their life. Like to have a solution that can release the symptoms, they know it won't cure them, but it really impacts their, their lives in a, in a positive way. Yeah, yeah. We do have, it's true what you say, we do have a lot of attention and awareness toward these diseases, but it's mainly built on us acknowledging that it exists. The second level, I think, what is also interesting in, in this restaurant is there's value. You know, these people keep continuing contributing value to the system mm -hmm. and the economic meshwork. So Krupa, your take on that? Any opportunities? Do you have other examples where these people were taken out of the isolation and, and, and delivered value? Yeah, so there's an example here, actually, if we just keep on the topic of dementia. In about four or five years ago, actually, in the UK, where a care home actually recreated a 1950s-style High Street. It's known as Sensory Street um, to help simulate what it used to be like for people who lived in, uh, who currently stay in the care home but have dementia. And it has features such as a tea room and the sweet shop and whatever. But it's about helping them live better in the world that they are currently in. And I thought it was really, it, it is really lovely to have something like this. And I love what you've talked about. And like Aileen, I'd like to visit there as well. In the UK, what we have is, if we think about living rather than curing for a second, in the UK, we have what's known as social prescribing. So I'm not sure if you've heard of this. So if you are diagnosed with depression or whatever it may be, uh, social prescribing takes, okay, you may need medication, but it gives you other therapies to help you live better with that. And so one of the things they prescribe here is gardening, and or working on allotment or going working with animals. And there's so many, and we know there's so many therapeutic benefits around that and, and having that sense of community to help people. There are these types of examples that exist here. And then you've obviously got cultures, which if we think about us as society, in fact, what we have done is we spent far too long on being perfect. And the idea of perfection goes down to social media and what we see. And therefore, if we have got a condition, we're not given the space to em embrace that maybe. Nowadays, that, that is kind of changing. For example, if you are neurodivergent, that is now seen as, a, okay, this is, this is a bit about me. It's no longer your identity. And that's it. You don't say, 
I'm depressed, you say I have depression because that's that's not the whole of you. And so we are seeing a shift towards that, which I quite like. But what I would say that I don't see enough of in the UK particularly, and I think it's because we follow the American way of life in particular, is enough on prevention. So the NHS is a huge example of what it is to treat. I'm not saying it's going to cure. I'm saying it's to treat a symptom, an illness. But what about if we spent more time on prevention? Could we then, there are some diseases we know we can't, but could we then ultimately help with curing because you've prevented it? Prevented it. So take diabetes, South Asian people, are more predisposed to diabetes than white people. Even if we had the same exact meal, our bodies would respond in a different way and ultimately we release more glucose into the body and whatnot. And there's a huge study, 100,000 people are taking part, 100,000 South Asian people are taking part in this study as part of a UCL piece of research to look at what can we do with diseases such as diabetes, in particular in ethnic minorities, to say how can we help people Maybe not cure it, but live with it, but have a better way of life. So that's food as medicine. So I think we need to pay a little bit more attention on prevention if we can for diseases where we can. Um, but I love this example that you brought, Mo. Well, very interesting points you make there. The first one is on the high street. Highly recommend you to look up the counterclockwise experiment by Ellen Langer, because you know that if you put people back in their environment where they used to thrive, they get their physiological performance increases. They see better, they walk further, they have more muscle tone and things like that, which is incredible. Secondly, on the diabetes prevention, if Ozempic disappears, it will work. But if the shot is easier than the prevention, I think it won't be easy for us to go into prevention. Uh, Aline. If I can add something very quickly, I think there's also a cultural aspect to that. So in France, for instance, the people who have tried trisomy 21, they're, they're actually independent. They, they can live in their own apartment, they, they, they work. That's Down syndrome. Eh? Exactly, yeah. yeah. But I know that in other countries, they stay at home with their parents or in special in institutions. So I think it also depends on the, on the countries. On the culture, yeah, yeah. Okay, last but not least, I saw you nodding, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, a strange expression. I think there's a lot you want to share maybe about this topic. Yeah, I have a lot of strange expressions, but that doesn't always mean anything, just to be sure. There's a cure <laughs> for that. Maybe there's no cure for that. Maybe that's that's just this. You, you just have to. No, I was that. nodding because, I mean, there's also, in, I think in the Netherlands, I think it was in a rest home where the, the front doors of the rooms of elderly had their old front door of their homes printed on it. A bit the same, uh, the, the, the same thing indeed as well. And also, I mean, your example, it was mentioned before and the one from Japan, it, it, it's amazing. It exists also in Belgium. I know you know it. It was a television show where young dementia uh, patients actually were also working in a restaurant. The restaurant was called Misunderstanding, so it's kind of similar. The thing is, of course, that the restaurant after the television show stopped. Right. It was mainly, and we talked about it as well, to raise awareness, which is great, but it doesn't, it's not a no cure care, right? It's, it's just a one time thing. And so to the question that we focus enough on no cure care, I don't think we do actually. 
And my experience from working with hospitals, pharmaceutical companies, I really don't believe that is the case. And I think it has to do with a couple of things, and mainly because they consider it a cost. Aline, you talked about Crohn's disease, IBD. I think I worked on a project with a pharmaceutical company to help living with Crohn's disease and IBD. It was all about helping them with traveling, helping them with self-esteem, helping them with finding a toilet more easily, helping them with basic communication about their disease, whether it is at work or with family and so forth. And so we, we created quite a bunch of services there, but there was no business model behind it, as you, you were mentioning Mo, uh, Mo as well. And so after a while, a couple of years, new manager, maybe the, the revenues of the drug decreased. Well, those services disappeared as well. So I think because it is always a cost for a company or a healthcare institution, it's, it's very often lacking. And at least I don't think there's enough no cure care there. Startups might be a little bit better positioned, perhaps if their business model is centered around it, but also there, I think, Aline, you can contradict me if, if it's not correct, but I think social startups or startups with a social focus, they're not always the most attractive ones for investors. And so it's, it's a bit more difficult, I guess. So you just gave me an idea. Maybe there's a marketplace to offer these people work opportunities because it's not because they are a little bit ill that they can do nothing. Right. So I think you might maybe attract companies or institutions that are willing to do that because their purpose or their, their company, you know, would willingly embrace that. Anyway, very interesting point. You know, maybe there is value, but if there's no business model behind it, well, it, and, it, uh, it, it, it can work though. And, and there are a couple of examples. We heard them already um, here on the show now, but I think there's two that I really liked. And one was it's called Sex with Cancer. It's actually an online okay. shop. And that was set up by two former cancer patients. And what they did is they explored how people live with and even beyond cancer uh, when it goes about sex. And so they they really provide practical solutions. They have some peer-led resources. They have creative ways of rediscovering your body, your relationship, and so forth. So, And that is a, a really nice example. It's basically, I mean, I would say the toys in the shop are pretty much the ones you find everywhere. But the way that they present it, the way that they add content is, is really exceptional. Yeah, really interesting. I think one last takeaway point, there is nothing that connects people who would be interested in engaging with these people and finding and connecting them in some way, right? I think the Restaurant of Mistaken Orders has done that, you know. If you have like-minded people without an uh, an impairment and with an impairment and they they want to engage in maybe a business venture or a service and things like that, there is no connection possible because where do you find these people? on both sides. So anyway, a really interesting topic. Thanks again for your contributions. Maybe we'll continue offline to discuss that. Christophe, back to you. Yeah, indeed. And I couldn't have said it better. Some very smart words again this month. And indeed, it's time to wrap up the Healthy Season podcast. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. And by the way, you can also find us on the Shift Forward Health channel. It's a podcast channel of thought leaders who are actively designing and building the health and self-care business of tomorrow. For now, I'd like to thank our own thought leaders for their insights and health enthusiasm. Thank you, Aditi Joshi, Aline Noizet, Krupa Suter, and Mo Zuwina. My name is Christophe Choquet. We are the Health Enthusiasm Panel, and we'd love to see you again next month for some more health enthusiasm. Ciao. 
Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please spread the word. Tell your colleagues to tune in for all the awesomeness, then leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. See our full lineup at shiftforwardhealth.com. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. And remember, we might have a lot of work to do in healthcare, but we'll get there faster together. Thanks again. Thank you.